the old pilot's plain tales. RAF Form 414, Volume 22 I trust that you will recall the stories from my RAF logbook which had reached the point of my first Hornet deployment to New Zealand to work with the Kiwi A4 Skyhawks of Number 75 Squadron Royal New Zealand Air Force at Ohakia. We were given a warm welcome by all and sundry on the base and made feel at home, which wasn't hard since both Britain and Australia have a long relationship with the land of the long white cloud, a translation of Otirua, the Maori name for the islands. The squadron we were working with had a rich history going back to its formation in 1916 as part of the Royal Flying Corps. After a brief period of being stood down in between the wars, it was reformed in 1937 as a bomber squadron and when the New Zealand government offered to place 30 modern Vickers Wellingtons it had purchased at the RAS disposal, they were placed with 75 Squadron, which was renamed number 75 New Zealand Squadron. The unit operated the Wellingtons, then Stirlings, Lancasters and finally Avro Lincolns. In recognition of its fine combat record, at the end of the war the RAF officially handed over the 75 Squadron title and badge to the Royal New Zealand Air Force, the only time that such an honour has ever occurred. Upon returning to New Zealand, the squadron was rehomed at Ohakia with mosquitoes and was then equipped with vampires, Canberras and finally the A4 Skyhawks we were to fight against. At the start of our first week at Ohakia, we climbed the big staircase to the main briefing room for morning prayers, the nickname for the daily weather and operations briefing that kicked off the day. Halfway up the staircase, I came to a halt and gazed up at a huge photograph hung against the wall. It depicted a foreship of Skyhawks in a tight formation inverted over the airfield, probably halfway through a barrel roll. They were streaming smoke, so obviously a formation display team, but that wasn't what had caught my eye. The lead aircraft was carrying a buddy-buddy air-to-air refuelling pod on its centerline station and had trailed the hose, and the number four was in contact with its probe firmly in the centre of the basket. Whilst in this vulnerable position, the team had then performed low-level formation aerobatics. I was jostled by the stream of pilots making their way up the stairs as I marvelled at the skill required for this feat. Not just the formation keeping, that meant any error might damage the hose or pull the end off the Skyhawk's probe, but even just the consequences of the hose pulling free with the two wingmen so close to a heavy flailing refuelling basket. I was to learn that about the same time as I was finishing my exchange tour, the team, named Kiwi Red, had an accident when the numbers three and four collided in mid-air, killing one of the pilots. Sadly, this led to the team being disbanded, although the squadron did continue to fly its aircraft at displays. 
It was whilst looking at this remarkable photograph that I realised that this small squadron wasn't some backwater unit we were working with, but a tight-knit band of hard-working professionals who, despite their long-in-the-tooth second-hand aircraft, were up for a fight, as I was to discover that very day on my first flight a 1v1 air combat mission. We got airborne in trail and meandered out to the play area, and then it was the traditional Outward turn for combat, go! We both turned 45 degrees away from each other, and when we had achieved a few miles separation, it was Inwards turn for combat, go! Once we were established, running towards each other, and we confirmed visual, it was fights on. The classic Hornet, as it's known today, was probably the best manoeuvring dogfighter of its era, and I was expecting a quick and easy kill, but in the hands of a skilled aviator, that A4 was dancing around the sky like a nasty and vicious kickboxer. The Skyhawk was built during the 50s, along with a whole generation of fighter aircraft that included such machines as the F-4 Phantom, the F-104 Starfighter, the F-105 Thunderchief, MiG-21 and the Mirage III, to name just a few. The US Navy wanted a jet to replace the A-1 Sky Raider, and the Douglas designer, Heinemann, came up with a small, inexpensive, lightweight, multi-role option that was amazingly flexible. The A4 is compact, and its diminutive size soon gave birth to nicknames such as the Scooter, Kitty Car, Bantam Bomber, Tinker Toy, and Heinemann's Hot Rod. Indeed, its short wingspan allowed it to operate in a carrier without folding wings, which saved around 200 pounds over 90 kilograms of weight. However, a lot could be fitted onto that pocket-sized airframe. Internally, it held a pair of Colt Mark 12 20mm cannons, each firing a 1,000 rounds per minute, and on the five hard points on the wings and fuselage, a whole multitude of weapons and tanks could be accommodated from nuclear bombs, mavericks, paveway-guided bombs, rocket pods and sidewinders, to the buddy-buddy refuelling tanks. Indeed, it was the first fighter to be so equipped and it pioneered the tactical advantages such a system afforded. Being so light, it had an impressive power-to-weight ratio, and with full-span spars made from a single forging, it could pull a substantial plus 8, minus 3G. Its turn rate was augmented by long leading-edge slats that self-deployed at an appropriate speed using a combination of air pressure and gravity, saving the weight of hydraulic actuators. Occasionally, they deployed asymmetrically, which led to an interesting uncommanded role. Despite its operational history in Vietnam, the Onkapur War, the Falklands War and Operation Desert Storm, there was no way that I should lose to this diminutive fighter that was snapping at my heels, but pretty soon we had gone from two circles to one circle and I was getting my nose in behind and then he reversed on me and off we went into a scissors. 
Now, a scissors is when the defender pulls into the attacker to force a Tom Cruise-style flyby, but unlike his opponents in Top Gun, the counter is well known. This ended up in a flat scissors, there is another kind, and flat doesn't mean horizontal as it can be done in the vertical going up or down. The two adversaries fly a series of reversing turns, the aim of which is to manoeuvre hard to make little forward progress, driving towards the enemy's six o'clock and then forcing them out in front. To disengage from a scissors usually puts you on the defensive and you'll likely get shot. So if you're equally matched or don't have a wingman to bail you out, it's a matter of who runs out of fuel first. The Skyhawk's snappy manoeuvrability makes it ideal to fly the quick reversing turns required in this tight weaving pattern. But in the Hornet, I had a trick up my sleeve. I stopped turning against him and in full burner put my wings level and the stick into my stomach. The nose obligingly pitched well up and with an indicated 90 knots my magic machine started climbing above him. My forward speed was minimal and I could occasionally see the A4 weaving around below me but without the energy to follow me up. For a while I lost sight of him underneath the leading edge extension so I firmly pushed full forward stick and my hornet rotated until the world beneath me was revealed. I needed a little more height so selected full back stick again and carried on up. The second time I had enough separation to let a sidewinder do the talking and popped one off, drawing the fight to a close. Despite the result, I felt this little fighter, designed in the 50s, had more than proved itself a worthy opponent. We flew more combat missions, mainly 2v2s, but it wasn't until we flew strike missions, with the A4s acting as defensive air cover, that we began to learn how difficult it was to oppose these guys in their own backyard. The 75 Squadron pilots didn't need special permission and fully surveyed low-flying areas to go to ultra-low level. I discovered that they were all, as a matter of norm, authorised down to 100 feet just about every day of the week. Combined with their camouflage, their size and their height against the dark greens of the New Zealand countryside, they were just about invisible. What's more, our hornets were painted an air defence pale grey, which was far from inconspicuous. Our main defence was the APG-73 radars, which could sweep ahead and allow us to engage beyond visual range with Sparrow missiles, but in the scenario given, we still had to penetrate at low level. We ingressed at a compromised 500 feet, which gave us a small amount of look down, hopefully enough to spot the threat before we came in range of their sidewinders. Ha! We got some fleeting contacts, but not enough to hold a lock, and then, from folds in the ground that would barely have hidden a flock of sheep, up popped skyhawks. Some came at us head-on, which gave us time to engage them, but the smart ones let us pass over unseen, and the first we saw of them was when they were in our knickers, claiming kills. Although the 75 Squadron guys knew our route and could set up visual caps, combat air patrols, along it, it was still an embarrassment we should have avoided. 
The answer was a medium-level sweep ahead, followed by an escorted package with the bombers at ultra-low level and a higher escort a little behind to engage any A4s that got amongst us. Lessons learned. We also got involved with some ship strikes against the Navy, something that we would do a lot more of when we were equipped with Harpoon air-to-ship missiles, but this was more fun. We were carrying practice bombs so that after fighting our way to the ship, we got to bomb it. Well, not the ship exactly, but a splash target towed behind a frigate. Fun fact, the Royal New Zealand Navy was the last to stop the daily rum ration. Sailors could receive a tot, an eighth of a pint, of the 148% overproof, that's 98% alcohol, albeit mixed 50-50 with water. It was the United States Navy that first pulled the plug on the daily tot back in 1862. The Royal Australian Navy never issued rum rations. Straith mate, no grog, what a bunch of wowzers! The Royal Navy abolished the 230-year-old tradition in 1970 on a day now known as Black Tot Day, which for 52 years became an annual memorial celebrated by a tot of rum, followed two years later by the Canadian Navy. The Kiwis, however, hung on to their intoxicating habit until 1990, which meant that, whilst I was a guest there, the Navy was weaving around like drunken sailors. Bombing the wavy Navy, or perhaps the weavy Navy, was certainly new and a fun experience, as was working with the Kiwi forward air controllers, who guided us in from their blunties for some close air support missions. We also flew battlefield air interdiction missions that was combined with low-level air-to-air refuelling from the Skyhawk's buddy-buddy system. This was a little testing, as our usual height to refuel was in the high 20s and not down at low level. Close formation, close to the ground, has always given me a bit of the heebie-jeebies, as whilst concentrating 95% on maintaining position, there's little time to spend ensuring that your leader is keeping you both clear of terra firma. There is also considerably more turbulence from air deflected by the irregular terrain which disturbs the basket, turning it into a wildly moving target so it was more like a jousting tournament. Perhaps the most interesting mission for me was night bombing under Leapers flares. I'd heard of the technique which involved self-illumination of a target by dropping a flare from overhead or tossing it from a distance with a delay timer. Battlefield flares have been around for centuries. The first recorded use was by the Chinese in the 1400s. More sophisticated flares have been used extensively in both world wars and then by fighter bombers in World War II and after in the Korean War and during the Vietnam War. There were dangers involved in such attacks as a glance directly at the multi-million candle power flare could quickly destroy night vision and as the pool of illumination floated down on a parachute it swayed and bobbed around creating a fishbowl of light with a moving horizon which could be quite disorientating. 
Indeed, it was a surreal effect, as we completed night airway refueling, formating on each other using the glow strips on the Hornet's fuselage, followed by a night low-level ingress to the target. Approaching the target, the lead Skyhawk deployed the flares and we pulled up, checking the numbers and then tipped into the strange circle of light that had dramatically turned night into day. I was concentrating on acquiring the target and striving for a good aiming solution, but after, as I exited, looking to settle at the correct height, heading and speed, I had the feeling that everything had turned into black and white. Before we knew it, it was time to head back to Australia but not before we'd tried to smuggle the A4 tail hook that had been mounted into 75 Squadron's bar as a footrest. Sadly, someone dobbed us in, and the military police boarded our C-130 as it tried to taxi out and arrested the culprits. Those of us who flew the Hornets home also had a few hours of concern as the headwinds across the Tasman Sea were preventing us from landing with a safe reserve of fuel. The Skyhawk's buddy-buddy system came to our rescue, and after getting airborne we rendezvoused with one of the 75 Squadron jets and topped off our tanks. Even so, there were a few anxious moments as the actual winds became even less favourable. But after three hours, Willie came into view and the boss got us to close up and we did a smart formation fly past before breaking into the circuit. Sadly, the few times I was fortunate enough to work with the fine pilots of 75 Squadron made me a lucky man as a few years after I returned to the United Kingdom, a Labour government under the leadership of a Prime Minister with a history of anti-war sentiment and protest scrapped an order that had been placed for F-16s, removed all the existing attack aircraft from the country and disbanded the squadron. It has never reformed. Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. You can find out all about that at AirlinePilotGuy.com And if you're enjoying Plane Tales as a standalone podcast, then why not leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice? It would help us out a lot. And many thanks for listening.